Hi there. Welcome to Article 23. This is your podcast all about making work work. My name is James Hancock and I'm excited to be joined by Rhonda Brighton-Hall. Rhonda, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really well this morning. Thank you, James. Awesome. Yep. Glad to see your smiling face over the recording. People won't be able to see that, but no, we've got big grins because today we are talking about a topic that is absolutely critical to people at work, to teams at work, to organizations at work. Uh, we're going to talk about measuring culture. And I know we're going to want to jump straight into measurement tools, systems, um, <laughs> yes. technology, uh, survey yeah. design, all this kind of stuff. But I think we've got to start with what is culture? I, I, I love starting there because everybody always wants to talk about some tool and you're going, actually, you have to decide what you're trying to measure in the first place. So um, I think there's a definition. Harvard Business Review did a whole uh, volume of studies on um, this topic back in 2018 and the quote that they ended up with or the definition was culture is a tacit social order of an organization it shapes attitudes and behaviors in durable ways and cultural norms define what is encouraged discouraged accepted or rejected within the group so it's very much that definition in all its words and I think it's beautiful is actually everything it's the informality of that system but it's in the air and in the water as people say it's everything that's around you it sort of dictates what's acceptable or unacceptable around here and how people treat each other and so we've said a lot of times sort of talking about what is that yeah I love I, I love all of that I think that's such a great definition too and for me the part I don't know I just keep coming back to it uh, uh, later in the definition I feel like uh you know, it's sort of what I'm expecting to see, like attitudes, behaviours, but I really liked the social order part of that. And yeah. for me, it sort of goes to things we think about, like not only social order and things like hierarchy or structure or how flat or how not flat you are, all those sorts of things and sort yeah. of how the systems and structures and operating together. But then also I think the social order is like what you choose to value as important or things like that. So I think it's got a really nice sort of, probably double and maybe more than that meaning, but the yeah. social ordering of culture, I think that's everything. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a piece about it where you boil it down to, what are you trying to get to? Like, what what's the culture you're trying to get to? And people sort of start talking about a risk culture or performance culture or high performance culture or a safety culture or something else. But what you're actually talking about is a culture that doesn't hurt people and where every single person can thrive. And that comes down to an environment where you talk about the way you treat each other and every person that you work with, including partners outside the organization, including clients and customers, it's the way you treat people around here. And it's, it's as simple and as clear as that. And then when you start to talk about what does that mean, it's like, oh my God, you know, that's, that's really hard to get to. But uh, it's a system, not a number. We know that much and we're going to talk about that. But it is yeah. basically this, how do we treat each other around here? How do we treat other people around here? And can yeah, we thrive? I love that even maybe more than the first longer, nice definition. I think the way you treat each other around here is spot on. Um, absolutely spot on. So if we were to think a bit about, I don't know, the evolution of work, there's a lot of focus on how we're working right now. Um, simple and complicated things, you know, who's an essential worker, who's not an essential worker. Don't love the expression, but, you know, we're kind of looking at different parts of the economy. Uh, we're looking at, how we're working we're doing a heck of a lot of virtual calls um, potentially we might still be going to 
a factory or a site or a hospital or, you know, there's a whole range of things we're looking at, but it feels like work has changed in a way. And some of the systems and norms that we love, we probably would like to go back to and others might be new and different going forward, but I think it'll be a combination. Um, how has work kind of evolved over time and, you know, where are we up to now? Why don't we kind of have a conversation on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I love this topic too, because it's if you look at everything that's changed over time, you can sort of see where we're up to, but you can also see where we're headed because it hasn't just, and surprise, it all happened. I mean, everything that we're looking at in 2020, for example, was things that were predicted in 2018 in the Future of Work report by VanQuest. So it's really that Curtin Economic Center report said, this is where we're going to go. And here we are, just a little faster courtesy of COVID, but pretty predictable. Yeah. When we look at the evolution of work, we have like a timeline that we, we always refer back to because it does sort of inform how you think about it. So let me quickly run through that. So 1760 to 1840 was sort of walking out of the, the fields and into the factories. And that was the beginning of the first industrial revolution. 1840, we started to, to see that that way of working in factories was really crazy. And that when we say crazy, I mean, people died. <laughs> so pretty bad. And especially children and poor people because they were the people who were in factories. And so by 1860, 20 years later, we were sort of saying, actually, we need some rules and restrictions around how we come together when we work. And that was the Geneva Workingmen's Convention where we introduced the 40-hour working week. Now, what's important about that, even though it's so long ago, is that it's in that time that it actually, we introduced the 40-hour working week, five days a week, eight hours a day, and bugger me, we're still doing it. Like, it's just still such an a incredibly old way of doing things, but that's how we kept it. 1930s, we started in scientific management, and that was Taylor you know, turn the lights up brightly, put people in a different order, we can make them work faster. We continued, we continued that into 1950s, which was what known as the third industrial revolution. And it's not, um, not unexpected that it's around this time when we started to put the first digital revolution, as that was also called. So third industrial is also the first digital, that's 1950. But in 1948 was in the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, they started talking about the right to work and how we worked. And I think that's fascinating too. And of course, um, we know a lot about that because Article 23 of the Declaration of Human Rights is of course, um, the right to work. And we've named this podcast after that and the importance of work. So that's just yeah. an aside. But from 18, 1950s, we then went across the 1990s and we had quite a heated debate with, between business, psychology, people, welfare, well-being, And we wanted to start to talk about a triple bottom line and that was the expression and it was um, a yeah. financial bottom line a human capital people a, a human capital is a secret word for people people bottom line and a planet which is the environment and so what we wanted to make sure that companies were good for all three of those things for humanity society for finance and success but also for planet and the environment that triple bottom line was sort of gazumped by a big debate around linking humans to productivity which was taking the ideas of 1950s sort of we can do more with less um, right. and the score for that in 1994 that was introduced was engagement and engagement has a direct correlation into productivity or doing more with less going fast and that's where those sorts of scores came from and they're still around today they're a bit like that um, 1860 way of working we've hung on to that from 1994 even though so many other things have changed and then in 1910, we started to get a bit more, sorry, 2010, we started to get a bit more sophisticated on this space because we had what we call a second renaissance where we started to go, it shouldn't just be about tech. 
um, people from the big tech companies left tech and started fighting tech. Um, it's just about tech supporting humanity or being good for the planet, not just about replacing human beings, which was sort of the, the old way of doing it. But at the same time, there was this rise and rise of industrializing human skills. So whether that be industrialized creativity, innovation, agile with a capital A. I heard the other day someone said, I love agile except when it's got a capital. And so <laughs> being agile is great, but not with a capital A. Um, but this was the debate and it was all about what is a successful business? Is it a business that impacts people in a good way, finances in a good way and the planet in a good way? Or is it a business that can scale and, and make a gazillion dollars for one person? And that debate is now alive and well. That is a very, very pronounced debate here in 2020. And we're starting to have a social um, license to operate. We're expecting companies to do better, to do better by their team, better by well-being, uh, better by the people they work with and better by society. And I think that debate's long overdue and I'm, I'm really happy that it's here. Yeah, and that debate, there's so many amazing things in that. And I know we could talk about this for many a podcast and we, and we will. <laughs> um, uh, it, that focus on one extremely wealthy person, how does that work? What's the flow into society, to people that work with them, for them? All of those things is, is red hot in the US at the moment. Um, what, what came out when you were talking about all of that, Rhonda, I totally love that um, backdrop as well, is that however work has evolved, and it kind of makes sense, but however work has evolved, we've always kind of wanted to either study it, measure it, uh, run a bit of an experiment on it. I love the one you had in Taylorism, which was, uh, you know, in the 30s, 40s, around that time, you know, turn the lights on brighter, make people work harder if they do that. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the Hawthorne study is a bit like that as well. And then yeah. there's you know, things like natural light flowing on today, which is sort of, if you think about it, like an evolution of that in how places to work, whether it's home, wherever the workplace is. But we've always kind of wanted to understand how we can do better work. And so I think we'll get to measurement, but I feel like it's uh, uh, in 2020, we've got to talk a bit about this kind of revolution that we're seeing in work. And we've sort yeah. of got a, got a few points on that, I think. Um, but I think what we've kind of got is that there's the rise and rise of knowledge work and that we're kind of decoupling some of that from machines. And I yep. think it's interesting to see that that's probably not, um, you know, as generalizable as we think, but in the work we do, it absolutely is. And we're trying to think of what, 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 where's the rightful owner of work, if that makes sense. Should it go to a machine or should it go to a person? What's valuable, where should it go? All of those things. I think that's gonna keep being uh, an important kind of debate. Uh, we're definitely seeing, goes without saying, a rapid increase in flexible work in a whole range of ways. And as you said, that Bankwest Curtin Economic Centre report showed that kind of pattern beautifully in Australia and, and uh, it was really clear, um, sped up by a pandemic for sure. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think what we're seeing in some of the other data is this deeper understanding of um, our impact for ourselves, um, also uh, on others, basically. Um, but sort of this individual difference, things like that, and how we, how we always put it, and it, we, we take it from psychology and science in a way, I guess, is basically we've got to balance the ideographics so something at a very individual level and then kind of nomothetic or aggregate kind of information. And I think in any measurement of culture, you've got to have a bit of, bit of both for that. And that's probably, as it, work has evolved, our thinking on that has evolved too. We've gone away from like everyone's the same, et cetera, to maybe more individual. 
um, and how those things come together, where they should cross over. Um, but we can talk talk a bit more about that too. There's, a, there's another piece of, of this, James, that you introduced me to, which was also this thinking about the design of work. Like if you look back to scientific management and how far we've come, that was very much about how can we make people go faster. And if you look at the activity around activity-based working, it was how many people can I fit into a small space to go faster? <laughs> so I'm going to activity-based working them, put Agile in there, they can go very fast in a very small space. So that's sort of some really difficult parts of that. But the, the positive side of that was the things that you work with, which I, I know that you have a great love of architecture and space and how to build that, but biophilic design and sort of bringing nature into offices, the joy of having an open office window. And I think that's the other sort of revolution that we've had is that this way of thinking about an office designer, a workspace designer, a factory design is that we are living things and it needs to be thought about differently. So our impact, nature's impact on us and also our impact on each other as tribal um, people. <laughs> and yep. so that way of coming together as part of a natural environment is also really important. And I know that's a little bit random and to the side, but it is one of those things that when you start talking about culture and measurement, how it feels to be here is actually pretty important. I love that. And yeah, I love architecture design and just all of those things, yes. And I love, and I, increasingly, I don't know why, but I seem to be getting a lot, even though we don't have a backyard over here, a lot of like build a little office in your backyard. And I'm like, your marketing's missed, but I get the point that we're trying to design spaces to, to, to do great things that are comfortable. So I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that one. <laughs> what about if we were to go to for a second, and I'm sure we both got great ideas and we can, we can bounce on this one. Um, where have we come to from measurement? We spoke about, you know, Hawthorne studies, Taylor's studies, scientific management, things we do, uh, way we design things. But what about how we try and measure culture? Like, what have we done in the past? Has it been good? What kind of comes into play, I guess? Yeah, well, I think this is another area that's sort of coming through fairly quickly. But if you look historically, I mean, the 1994 was the onset of engagement. And that's just looking at a score across a set of numbers and trying to beat it all the time. So... A good number is a high number is a good number and so if you get that number you are good and therefore things are okay um we also yeah. went through all the surveys when we started to say it would be really great if the organ i remember one i can't remember which one it was but it was if your organization is violet so it had to be a color and so you all sought to become violet whatever that meant at the time but it was like wow. that was the holy grail and you look at it and you go oh my god i'm aqua that's a disaster. I've got to get to violet. So it's a crimson disaster. I've got to get to violet. So um, there's that sort of piece of it too. There was happy sheets where people sort of ticked it off and said, are you happy? Um, but what we, we know about culture, it isn't just human beings are much more complicated than just happy and sad. We're actually happy has a whole bunch of meaning to it. We can be momentarily happy, but deeply satisfied is almost an emotion beyond that that feeling of deep contribution of being where you're meant to be. Um, and we've sort of been tossing that around for the longest time. But if you look at some of those old engagement scores, there was a couple of things that as soon as you say them, people go, oh my God, I know exactly what that means. And one of them is um, the dread of the action plan. <laughs> oh no, please don't make me do it, Rhonda. I'm getting I'm anxious shakes over here <laughs> uh I, I remember that one vividly uh the action plan I, I i think what's important on that one for me is i don't think people hate the idea of talking about making 
their work and what really matters at work and how they do it with each other. I don't think anyone is worried about that conversation. I think it's the way we constructed and contrived and made this process where it was like, I don't know, we're talking about a data point, not like what's really behind it or what it means or why your style is a bit different to mine and how we can uh, work out ways to, you know, bring it together around a certain project or whatever. Those things make sense. I don't yeah. think anyone's kind of shies away from that. Yeah. But I think the way we said like, oh, cool, for the 15th year in a row, change management hasn't been good. Um, what should we do? <laughs> Talk to each other more. And you're like, okay, we're doing it now, but it's still not great. You know, there's got to be ways to kind of crunch through that um, uh, that are more meaningful, I think. Sorry to pick on change, but it was a common one. There's also merit. Like if you do find something in your culture that isn't very good and you do something about it, that's really cool. But the other great dread of these sorts of old ways of measurement was the dread of no action whatsoever, which is a bit your example when someone says, we've been pretty rubbish at change management for 15 years, let's chat about it again. Pardon me, as opposed to what we're actually going to do about that. Is there something we can do differently that would make us better at that? And I think that dread of inaction is also, please don't make me fill out a survey that's going to go nowhere again. Yeah, people kind of get to the point and, you know, good good people wanting to do good work together go to the point where it's like, why don't you just take the question out? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, like, I'm, I'm out. Um, which I, I don't think is quite right. They opt out. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's sort of, when you look at something like how do you measure uh, and map culture and understand it, it's not just how you do that. It's also the why you do about that. But it's also um, how do you bring it to a place where people are actively engaged in it? So if, if you've got a process that's fine and people can answer the questions easily, that's fine. But what do you do about it? How do you move things forward? How do you make things better? Because there's no such thing as a perfect culture or a disastrous culture. It's more, this is good. This is not so good. What could we do? How could we work through this and get it a bit better? And I've never seen a culture that couldn't be better than it is. So every culture has an opportunity to improve. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so I think, you know, we want to measure it. Uh, we want to find great ways to do that, that are meaningful for people so they do great work together. So they keep treating each other great, better, moving forward with momentum, growth, all of those good things. So it's this sort of uh, secret source kind of thing uh, that, that we're looking for. Uh, we've got some cool ways to measure that. What's sort of mattering in culture in 2020, though? Because I feel like it, it is a pretty special year, to put it mildly. It, it uh-huh. is, but, you know, as we said before, a lot of the things that we're seeing happen were actually things that happened that have been happening for a long time. They've just increased or, or sped up. I mean, yeah. things like we want to work more flexibly so that it fits better with our lives, so that we reduce other stress points or tension points, have more time with family, et cetera. That, that's been happening for a long time. And people have wanted it for a long time. And I think if you look at the numbers, contrary to popular belief, um, the people who actually do work flexibly, the people who are in charge. And the people who don't work flexibly, the people who are not. So all that's happening now is the people who are not in charge have had the opportunity to work flexibly and they like it too. Who knew? Like I think all of us like to work so that it fits well with our life. So we're seeing that. We're seeing people say, you know, what? actually there's one element of this. I had a really interesting conversation with someone. They were talking about... At the moment, what really matters is connectivity to things. And they were sort of saying connectivity to work and work group doesn't matter at all. And actually, it only matters because of your connection to family, friends and neighbourhood. And I thought that's really interesting because I think I would disagree with it. 
but it was a really interesting, jarring sort of point where you stop and think. Because if you think about work as being important and how important it is to our psychology, and it doesn't have to be the overriding only factor about our identity or anything else, what our job title is or something silly like that, but just that ability to contribute to society, to go back to Article 23, the Human Rights Declaration of, of, of uh, Human Rights, is that that opportunity to contribute, to participate, is actually really, really important. And it's as important today in 2020, COVID aside or anything, as it ever was. And so we do feel that we need to be part of something, to belong to something. And I think that's also a big driver of culture and connectivity. And I think to answer your question about 2020, I just, we got a lesson in connectivity. We got a lesson in what it's like to be disconnected and we got to listen to what it's like to be connected and how important it is. And so when we talk culture, it is that shared ideal of how we're going to come together and impact each other, how we're going to work together and ensuring that each other can thrive and that no one gets left out. Yeah, and I think you put it so well and I feel like, you know, you just clarified something for me in a way is uh, about the trends and patterns we already had. So it sort of put fuel on things that were already burning. So things yeah. like collective work, all of that makes sense. And also at the same time, and sort of strip back some things about what's always been important that we need to go back to, if that makes sense. So you've got this sort of new change, but it's not really change, it's just fire behind that, or yeah. you know, fighting a fire, bigger fire on that, and going back to kind of the basics, the core principles in a way as well. That's yeah, cool. and when, one of the things that we've, we've just done our second, um, halfway through, our, our second giant literature review, big scientific literature interview of this whole space, because we like a bit of, of uh, factual basis to build things on. So in this second review, it's really interesting, even today, when we start to talk about culture and how we map it, measure it, and look for it, there's just so few people talking about this collective sense of belonging, this collective sense of being together, thriving together, participating, contributing. And so we go back to, there's a number of things that we've looked at. Obviously we look at academic articles all the time, but there's also, there's a couple of um, readily accessible reference points that we've used that other people have used too. So we've got Michael Bond, Power of Others. That's a very much about the impact we have on each other's. Jeff Pfeffer, Dying for a Paycheck, 2018 book on the way that we're working is very, very flawed. So we could probably do that differently. <laughs> Yep. Dying is yep. a, a big statement, but okay. Yep. Um, and then the third one we really like is Peter Block's work. He talks about community and the structure of belonging within community. And in those of us who believe that work is really important, and I, I just, anyone who doesn't understand that, I just, I so want to show them what happens when people don't get to work because it's just quite devastating. So when people understand the value of work, and understand the value of creating community at work, that's when we start to go, okay, what is that feeling of belonging? What is that feeling of participating and contributing to your best? What is that feeling that you're meant to be here or you're included? Um, and that's what we've, you know, spent, you know, days and nights and years now looking through and, and trying to get to. And I think at the moment that we're very, very close to it. We've, we've really narrowed this down. So maybe we go across to how do we measure this complex system, this culture? It's not a number, it's not a colour, it's a system. And so for, therefore we have to look at the whole system and how it comes together. Yeah, I think that's right. And I love those points on collective and everything else. Cause I think, you know, right at the start of the pandemic we started going back to what are those core things? And I think we went back for a while uh, to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And we said like, you kind of, wherever you were you slid back down to making sure you kind of had your house in order. And by that, I mean shelter, but also like food, 
water, shelter, and, you know, make sure my family's safe. And then we started saying, well, like, that's an individual level. But then, yeah, we agree family broadens it a bit. We agree that sort of your neighborhood maybe or your uh, local community broadens it a bit out to other communities and then kind of out to society. But you couldn't, this showed you, you couldn't be in isolation, only worried about your own little triangle uh, in, yeah. some, in some big thing. And I feel like we've taken that and applied it out to uh, belonging and work, which I think is, is really spot on. Um, uh, and I think on the measurement of it and on thinking about it, uh, you get something really cool measuring it when it's going great. And like you said, like work is so critical, so fun fundamental to how we are as humans, in, in my opinion, is you see a whole lot more when someone doesn't have work where they have had it before. So you see a lot of uh, yeah. information about that. They go back to base principles. They worry about a whole lot of things. So I think it's that's an interesting one too. And unfortunately, that's been brought home to us a lot through this time period and particularly in the US, to be fair. Um, yeah, and it's breaking down just very, very simply and understand we all share it is this, this ability, this right to contribute to society is really important to everyone. And, and yeah, it's how we're wired. And, it, and if we take that away, not, you know, anyone who tells me oh, it's not really important, I'm looking at them going, yeah, well, you've got a really big job. So obviously, it's very important to you, but go and sit by yourself for a year and don't contribute to society, see how you go. I mean, it's, it's mind-numbing, literally mind-numbing. So I think what we've sort of got to with this system is what are the elements of the system and how do you look at it? And so let's go through a couple of those factors. So the first one that we talk about is purpose. And it's the, the thinking on purpose has always been uh, sort of, everyone understands that it's one of those things that's sort of a bit of a no-brainer, as they say in the States. It's like, of course. But yeah. it's how we ask about it and talk about it that it actually comes to life. So if you look at a fairly traditional approach talking about purpose, they would ask a simple question like, okay, we've released our new vision or something like that and put our values on the wall and, and therefore you know who we are. And so the question would be, do you know our vision, yes or no? And um, do you think it's important, yes or no? Okay, and that's, that's sort of anyone can say, yes, I read it on the wall and yes, I think it's an important vision. But that's actually not what matters at work. That's not how we belong to work. And what matters about purpose is um, how is the purpose of this business relate to the work that I do? You know, how am I part of it? And also, do I deeply understand what's most important to me? Because most of us don't give a lot of thought about that. But when you give people a choice between what do you want to do, be very rich or have a really great social impact, for example, it's that sort of break that people have to go, wow, both of those are really cool if I could do both. Somewhere in the middle is where I live. Which, which one am I swaying towards? So you're starting to get a deeper, different set of questions a deeper insight into how people are thinking and you're also giving them the opportunity to join the conversation and I think that is a massive change in understanding culture is that if you go back to 1994 when we did the first scoring of things yep. like engagement it was a big score that came down from the senior team to ask you some questions make sure you're personally okay and then it went back up to chat with them now what we're talking about is transparent information, people reading those books that we talked about, they understanding the impact of work, they want to do work that's meaningful, they want to participate in this conversation. So there's a maturity and a democratization of how we talk about culture, its impact on us and well-being that we've never had before, which I think is incredibly cool. And that's just purpose. Yeah, I love that too. And I think um, you're spot on and I kind of think of it like a, a compass or a dial, you could probably pick something else. But what's my personal compass? What's the compass of my team? What's the compass of the organization? 
And are those little needles kind of pointing in a similar direction? And do I know what the things are when they're going a bit off course, if that makes sense? So um, I think it's interesting to see the big vision on the wall or whatever, like the printout poster. But the purpose is, yeah, knowing what it is every day, what you're trying to do, uh, what the guardrails are, what the most important things are. And you see really clearly when it's aligned and you feel it when it's not, whether you're in it as a person working in it in whatever format that is, or someone that's experiencing it as a customer, a community member, whatever that, whatever that external-ish component is, you see it so clearly. It's like, I feel that something's not right there. Yeah. I'll put my finger on it necessarily, but yeah, you feel it for sure. Yeah. I think, yeah. I was going to say the next one that's got to come through is relationships, right? Yeah. You want to <laughs> hang around with people that you actually like hanging around with and they like hanging around with you. Yeah. <laughs> they care you turn up. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is just fundamental. There's, a, there's also the next piece of it that we, we've done a lot of thinking on is the agency to work your way to be an equal. And I think this is very much 2020 and beyond. This is, you know, in the old days, who is my boss? That's the most important thing about my job. But now we're sort of saying, what do I get to do and how do I get to set it up and what's space have I got to run? That's agency. We call it freedom. How do you want to do it? And it's basically about coming to work as a grown-up. Yeah. I love that one. And it's interesting to see like the whatever agency anyone had before, it's sort of a new level now. And it's like whatever you had, like the floodgates have opened a bit, but also yeah. it's kind of been forced on you in a way as well. So it's just a, I think an interesting dynamic, but I couldn't agree more. It's such an important variable and it's sped a lot of things, conversations up in organizations, whether they were more traditional or super progressive. Everyone's having similar conversations now, which I think is really good at work. Yeah, very much so. And then we, from that, we go across to one that we actually picked up from the working community, the work with anthropology, the work for the academic research on how you build tribe, all those sorts of things. And that's accountability. And it's often left out because it's sort of seen as it, it's associated with pressure. It's just like, oh, you've got too much yeah. accountability, you've got too much pressure on you. But actually that feeling that the work I do is important and people really appreciate it because it's important to the work they're doing and we come together collectively to achieve something better than either of us could do alone. That's where the transactional way of looking at work that I do my transaction, put it back into the system and I'm done, as opposed to I'm accountable to the system and the people in it and my community, my relationships to do great work so that we collectively can do great work. It's a very, very important one. And, and it comes absolutely to life in the big indigenous communities because they can talk very, very clearly about the importance of your role in community, your importance to the collective, your responsibility to the collective, your accountability, um, as opposed to just I'm okay, Jack, which is very individualistic approach to work, which is sort of the 1990s, which has now been left behind. Yeah, and I, and I love that one too. And I think you're right. As soon as you hear the word, it's like pressure or deadline or something like that. Um, and it's very easy to think of task and put it back in the system, like you said, but it has to be about um, collective value creation. For want of a better expression, it's like, how are you doing something that's valuable? How are you doing it? How do we do something that's more valuable together than separately? And I think that's, that's perfect uh, with where we are right now. It's completely, completely true. I mean, making a contribution that's valuable and then doing it collectively, that's a beautiful way to describe it because it's a collective value creation. We collectively do something that's useful. Our contribution is important. And, and that, yeah, I think that's exactly what we're all trying to do all the time. And we all like being part of it. Like when you do that, if you're really good about it, you've got someone to share it with, you go, look what we did together, the whole team. And it, it feels great. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's got to be a foundation to all of this though, right? And I feel like people will be like, what are they going to say? But they'll also know that the answer is trust. Because <laughs> to, to, to do everything here, you have to trust who you're working with that, you know, if they're accountable for something that it's going to be done, that you can have a really, um, you know, direct conversation uh, on something that know that you're coming at it from a good angle, that it's going to go forward, that there's momentum, that it's with good intent, that it's behind these other things, purpose, that relationships will hold, that there's a freedom over it. Um, trust has got to be a foundation in all of that, I think. And trust is that good friend of safety and safety is another one that, that people need, but you've got to be careful that it's, there's a difference between the safety to know that I can try things, that I can take risks, that I can be the best I can be, that I can reach potential versus a trust that wraps me in cotton wool and keeps me so safe that I can't do anything at all. So um, it yeah. is that, that safety to be free and try things as opposed to safety where I'm closeted away. Um, and so all of those things have sort of come together and we've been merging them into what we call a belonging, a belonging index, which we, we think from everything we're looking at is so dangerously close and very, very exciting to being a really good hub for understanding that system that is culture. And then around it, what we're starting to do, and, and this is a, a conversation that, that you're very much leading, James, is this understanding that it goes into the whole system. So it goes across employees, people, teams, how they form organisations, the links into community. Um, when you look at an organisation, 20 years ago, we would just measure employees and there'd be a big debate over whether you measure contractors or not. Now, when you're measuring the culture of an organization, you're measuring the organization, the employees, you're measuring any contractors working with them, any volunteers working with them, any clients that work with them. And you're saying it's that measure of the whole that actually brings you forward and helps you understand the complex system that is culture. So I think that that's also a massive breakthrough. And I think, um... Yeah, that's absolutely perfect. And I think if we take that part about um, doing things that are valuable, creating value, it, and without making it too jargony, it's anyone that's in the system that's creating value with you. That's that's kind of how it comes together. So it could be, it doesn't need to be, we don't, we're not so worried anymore about inside, outside, employee, not paid customer, not, we're kind of just saying who's interested in what we're doing and how are they making a contribution to that in some way that's valuable. And if you can map and measure that and understand who's thriving and who's not, the ultimate ecosystem is one where everybody thrives. If you're killing off part of it, you have terrible treatment of customers, terrible treatment of employees, that's not a sustainable way to go. You eventually burn out your organisation. So making it so that it's a living, breathing system that works, an ecosystem, for one of less jargon. I know we hate the jargon, but at the same time, I was going to use ecosystem and I stopped myself, so I'm, I'm okay with it, <laughs> but I'm glad it wasn't me. <laughs> So that's just that's just one element that that hub that we call belonging but next to that we think the other elements of the system and maybe progressively we'll start to talk about all these elements we talk about belonging we talk about an identity or an inclusion identity like how do you see yourself um, we yep. talk about power and decision making who's making the decisions who has power we talk about relationships and how we connect they're your big social maps of the organisation. That's a totally different way of looking at organisations than we've done in the past. That's sort of the, the domain of the social psychologist, which obviously is both your and my background, but it, it comes from the sociologists or the anthropologist, and we're dragging that into work and saying, we think we've got the way we map and measure and understand work wrong. And if we start to pull in other schools of thought, like any complex problem, we have a very different foundation to build it on building that into a dashboard where all those data points are available to look across the system and have a really good look at it.
Yeah, I, yeah, totally agree. There's work to come, but we're so close. <laughs> we're so close and I'm really excited. I'm really excited too. So um, on that note, I, I think it is, uh, we deliberately decided today to have our podcast slightly longer so that we could have a bit of a discussion on all the elements that come into this understanding of mapping, measuring, appreciating, and creating cultures where people can thrive, where communities can thrive. So I really appreciate people allowing us that little bit of extra time. It's been quite lovely to talk to you about this topic as it always is. Yeah, same to you. Love it and can't wait to keep working on it together and with all of our clients and partners too. Yeah. And that will do us. Thank you very much. If you'd like to be in touch with us, uh, we have our newsletter come out every week and you can sign up for that just by sending us a short note either by the uh, by our website, www.mwah.live or via sending us a note to team at moi.live um, or by giving us a call. We're very, very findable. So <laughs> look forward to keeping in touch and that's a big moi from us. Thanks so much, James, for the conversation. Thanks, Rhonda. Big moi. <laughs> See you. Bye. Thank you.